Right. Surprise. Won't you open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. We're carrying on our series to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're calling this part of our series, Facing the Giants. We had a part where Jesus could pick anything. I want you to think about that for the moment. Here Jesus is explaining how our righteousness, our right standing as his followers, a follower is anybody who is a Christian, and uh, Jesus picked six things. He could have picked anything. And uh, we're calling these things the giants, facing the giants. Why? Because in our culture, these things are massive. Last two weeks, we've been dealing with anger, right? Isn't our society angry? Me, I get angry. Oh, Lord. I said to Marina after last week's sermon, I'm emotionally finished. <laughs> because God has been in his grace, putting his finger on these areas of my life, and I'm hoping yours, where he's going, guys, it might be acceptable in the culture, but for you as a follower of Jesus, this is the thing that brings bondage, this is the thing that blocks the kingdom, and Jesus wants us to enter into the fullness of the kingdom, amen? How about this week, lust? Oh my goodness. In society, isn't it prevalent everywhere? Our society is obsessed with sex, right, so? It's okay, you can say yes. <laughs> Divorce. Has there ever been a time when there has been such pressure on marriages? Hey, I was thinking about it. When I was at school, I honestly could only think of another friend whose parents hadn't been divorced. Hectic, eh? So these are the giants. And I'll tell you now, I had a beautiful graphic, but <laughs> the, uh, I will put it up for the six. The wrong one um, uh, was loaded, but don't worry, it's very pretty, and um, uh, we will put it up next week. But if you are a Christ follower, and I tell you now, if you want to become a Christian, you are putting your hand up to follow this Jesus, but following this Jesus is going to be totally different to the culture around us. Is somewhere in your life you will have to face one or all of these six things. And uh, the great test, this is really what's at stake this morning. The great test is, on whose authority are you going to build your life? Is it going to be your own good idea? I know some of us have strong opinions about this thing called last today, where the world around us will say, man, this is so old-fashioned, so prudish. Aren't we delivered from Queen Victoria's kind of monstrous kind of prudish sexuality? By the way, are there any under-13s here? Maybe it'll be good for you to go to <laughs> any anything. Go to Sunday school. It's going to be pretty mild, but I don't want any parents to feel uncomfortable. We're going to be talking about some big, big people stuff this morning. Back on track. Who's the authority of your life? Who are you going to believe? Can I say the reason why these things are called facing the giants is because for the Christian, everything else in society and everything else in, don't worry, they're being a great parents. Don't worry. <laughs> Everything else in society is going to tell you something different. And what's at test, what's going to be tested in the Sermon on the Mount is who are you going to believe? Who are you going to build your life on? Is it going to be what you think or what I think or what society thinks or are you going to do what Jesus thinks? That's the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. On whose life are you going to build? On whose authority are you going to build your life? And remember what Matthew chapter 7 says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that that decision of who you decide to follow has massive consequences for your life and mine. Can I just put it into perspective here? Jesus says, anyone who hears these words and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And all the testing, the winds and the waves of this world, and the testing that we're going to hear about later, this eternal testing, when our life is evaluated, it's going to stand. Ah, but he says the other option is building on quicksand. Anything other than what Jesus says. And let me tell you, when the waves come and the rains fall, it's going to crash. And it says, great will be its destruction. In other words, it's not just a little bit of like, maybe it's nice to think about this part of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what people who aren't Christians think. This teacher, Jesus, is amazing. They don't read what he says very carefully. He says, guys, this is totally countercultural. 
And can I say, I don't want anybody to feel depressed or despairing here this morning. All of these six things are so that the Beatitudes can operate in your life and mine. What's the first one? Becoming poor in spirit and going, Lord, that's me. Hey? And from that, the kingdom of heaven starts to open. Grace is for the humble. If you come this morning pushing back against God and saying, no, that's not me, or I don't agree, there's any kind of pride, my friend, the kingdom's going to pass over you. But I want to try and reason with you as Jesus did and as he's reasoning with me this morning, that his way is the best. Don't forget these beatitudes are called blessed. It is the pathway to the greatest blessing possible. And so we want to tackle lust this morning. And if ever there was a giant in our society, it is this. Colin says, our culture is obsessed with sex. And Billy Graham said 75% of God's best people fall in this area. So even in the ministry, can I say, it is a real wake-up call for me this morning. Just because somebody is called and getting to pray and read his Bible and getting paid to do that is no guarantee <laughs> that I'm going to finish my race well. But I want to. And lust is very similar to anger because... Just like anger, which is good, can I just remind you that as emotions are good, so is sexual desire. Your sexuality and my sexuality is a gift from God. And this is almost, you know, I would be as strong as that. There is an entire book of the Bible called Song of Songs celebrating it. Amen? This thing of Sex, it is designed by God. It's not a Hollywood thing. It is good. It was born at the throne of grace as one. And let me tell you, done in God's design and within his boundaries, it's awesome. It's awesome. But here's the thing. We can get confused. And I'm very aware that when I preach on these things, you can hear me saying, anger's bad. No, no. There's good anger and there's bad anger. When you talk about lust, you can hear me say, no, sex is bad. No, no, there's good sex and there's damaging sex. So there is this thing of there being a natural, good, healthy attraction to the opposite sex, which plays out like this. When you see a beautiful lady and you're a guy, you go, she's really pretty. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you can admire it. Or when you see a, a good-looking guy, if you're a lady and you go, oh, that's, that's a handsome oak. The difference is when you start drooling over that person, right? Whether it's in your heart or visibly. is when you start gawping, as that says. There's a problem. Is that what's good and healthy and normal has translated into a problem called lust and it's lethal. And can I say, as I'm going to read these words to you this morning, they are alarming words. They are words that are designed to grip your attention and go, what the heck, Jesus? Are you being serious? He wants to wake us up and saying, guys, in this in this aspect of lust, in this aspect of a sort of uh, where sinners come in and perverted what is good, God wants us to be alert. He wants us to be alert. And he wants to help us cut off this thing of sexual desire being birthed in an unhelpful or a vulnerable place in our lives where we can, it can lead to sin. And so what Jesus is saying is for our own good, can I say? Nobody here is pointing the finger at anybody else. What we are asking is in this place, we're wanting to come honestly before God and to see, Lord, how are you speaking to us this morning in what area? So I want to remind you, Jesus is showing us that his righteousness, his right living is exceeding all of these scribes and Pharisees that are living under the law of Moses. Last week, we looked at the sixth commandment, which was about anger. This week, we're looking at the seventh commandment, which is about adultery. And Jesus says, you have heard it said, oh, let's read it together. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 25, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There's the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye, listen to this, causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members then let your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Whoa. What Jesus is saying here is, for these scribes and Pharisees, I'll remind you, if anybody says you have to keep the law of Moses, you say, I'm sorry, that level is too low for me. 
the law could only address the action of sin. In other words, it had already brewed to the point in the person's heart that it became visible, adultery. But Jesus says, where the law couldn't go, he can go by the Spirit. And so he's saying here, for a Christ follower, your ability to live a life that pleases God is much higher because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you that prompts you of sin, even at the point of the heart. It's beautiful. And in a sweeping statement, Jesus says that it's not just going the whole way that's sin. In other words, trying to get as close as you can. It's not just the act of, of going the sexual impregnation, which is sin, according to how the Pharisees would have seen it. In one statement, Jesus says this. Any manifestation of this lust in our hearts and the action it causes, it's sin. And in one statement, he says, any fantasizing, any gawping, <laughs> pornography, petting, groping, whatever is the manifestation of this lust outside of the healthy realms of marriage, it's sin. And I ask myself the question, Jesus, why in this text, if the New Testament is so pervasive, comprehensive about sexual ethics, about how is a Christian, a human being, to align himself up with God's desire, why does Jesus only talk about adultery? He says, if any man looks with a lustful intent in his heart, he's committed adultery. Is he only narrowing it down to saying how you manage this thing of lust only matters in marriage? Is he only concerned about, in other words, is he excusing sex in other contexts like premarital sex or sex between unmarrieds or the same sort of sex, the same sex partnerships? What about those other things that, that Jesus deals with? Why is he narrowing it down to just adultery? If we know in the rest of the New Testament that it's broad in terms of how God wants us to live our lives. Well, the first is this. The reason why Jesus narrows it in a sense to adultery is because he's talking about the seventh commandment, which deals with adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so he's showing how in this aspect of adultery, his standards are much higher than these scribes and Pharisees who say, well, it's only if you actually do the act that you've broken the law. He's saying, no, no, you've already broken it in your heart if you've given into lustful intent. But I would say the second thing, and this is my own opinion, is that marriage does not necessarily solve the issue of lust. Shame. I, a friend of mine, a couple of years ago, he was finishing school. <laughs> he said to me, Matthew, I don't care what the woman looks like. I just want to marry her because I want release. That's what he said. It's fine, you can last. This is the, the sort of cross an adolescent bears. It's going, she, she doesn't even have to be pretty. I, don't even, I just want to have, get married so I can find release. I tell you, if that is your attitude going into marriage, your wife will be beating you off with a broomstick. She is not at your beck and call. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> and, and the Bible says, ladies, don't always be too tired. Men, are going, men, don't always be so busy or preoccupied. You'll be like, Pff. I tell you, it is true. We are so motivated by work. We neglect our wives. In other words, don't withhold your body. But I tell you what, we are to come to the party, but the party doesn't always come on our terms, right? And I tell you now that if we are not careful and we make that the sole reason for marriage, what will happen is when the thrill starts wearing off, oh dear, we look for excitement somewhere else. That's how it works. The other thing is this, and I would say the reason why Jesus specifically talks about adultery is because it is the most damaging context for lust. You see, when you have sworn before God or before the court, it doesn't matter, it's marriage, where you say, until the day I die, you're mine, I'm yours, nobody else. If you break that, if you go after somebody else, Outside of your marriage, I want to tell you, it is devastating. Some of you have lived this, and I want to remind you, tell your story often. Because what happens is if you start to entertain adultery and, go, and you start to pursue, even at an emotional level, somebody outside of your marriage, when it goes the whole way, it will damage your spouse 
so many men and women feel like nothing because they weren't able in their minds to be pleasing enough for their partners. And let me tell you, the damage to the children's just as severe. Can I just warn gently this morning, but firmly, if you are in a state in your marriage where you are at an impasse, I want to tell you, fix it for the sake of your children. Your marriage and your partner does not just exist for you, my friend. If you've had children in your marriage, you have to think carefully about whether or not your satisfaction or fulfillment matters to your children. Because in the end, I guarantee you, if you will not both come to the party, it will be devastating, not only for you, but for your children's sake. Well, I quickly want to put in an aside here. Where do we get God's design for sex? Why do we hear pastors say, no sex outside of marriage, and no manifestations of lust, in a sense, outside of marriage. Well, it comes from this Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 to 25, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his girlfriend, his fiance, his one-night stand, no, his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me tell you, that is Powerful language right there, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What's happening here? The first is this. Is marriage, how do you know when you're ready to be married? It's when you and your wife can become an independent family unit. You have to leave your father. You're not an extension of daddy's salary or mommy's, mommy's cooking. Gentlemen, especially us here. We are not an extension of our parents. We form our own family. We can stand on our own two feet. We leave our father and mother. And it is a permanent covenant. We hold fast. That is powerful language. Hold fast to our wife. Now remember, before sin came into the world, if it hadn't, we would have had Adam and Eve sitting here right now still married. The other thing is this, is that it is heterosexual. It is between a man and a woman, and it's monogamous. Notice the two will become one flesh, not three or four or five under the Mosaic law, which permitted polygamy. And sex is to be enjoyed. It says they were not ashamed. And the man and his wife were both naked, were not ashamed. In other words, they were enjoying the sexuality of being man and woman and all of the purity and goodness of God that God wanted to introduce through that relationship. That is the standard. That is the gold blessing of God saying, my intent for marriage and sexual expression of marriage, of this one, two becoming one flesh. But now the thing is this. Jesus knows that this thing of lust, it's destructive. I don't think there's anybody in this room here. It might be by the grace of God he spared you, but I tell you, nobody here has been unscathed in this area. And the reason why Jesus is so firm with anger and with lust is because he knows. He knows lust grows. Not so? Not so? He knows it. And I'll give you the stages of how lust grows into its fullness. The first is this. It starts with innocent attraction. And this is not sinful. It's normal to notice a person of the opposite sex as being beautiful or handsome. It's when temptation comes in, that's stage two. And that's still not sinful yet. Do you know, it says Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And we have a choice when this begins to arise in us. Either we look away, we resist the thought process, or we leave the situation, or we decide to engage. And that's the flipper. And this is where in the third stage, Jesus calls lustful intent. And this is where sin comes in. It's when temptation gives way to intent, mentally or physically, and the floodgates open. There's no longer a damn wall. And let me tell you, that flood that happens is powerful. Because remember, the thing about anger and the thing about lust is it's connected to your body. So physiologically, whoa, things start heating up. And by the time lustful intent in the mind has happened, that horse is ready to go. It's foaming at the mouth. And so... This Greek word, epithemeo, it talks about the moment when that desire takes over. The moment when you start to see that object, that thing, that image, that person, and that desire suddenly breaks forth. And you set your heart, you set your soul on it, and you begin to give in to its desires. And the desire begins to take over. Oh, 
That's where sin comes in. And it leads to obsession. Wow, that sounds like a strong word. No, no. It's exactly what happens. Obsession sets in at this point. It means that this idea of this person or this image, it starts to flash through your mind, becomes an almost obsessing point where sexual thoughts begin to dominate your mind. And when there's any downtime, day and night, it starts to play over and over and over. Do you remember the story of Mrs. Potiphar? There is Joseph. And it says in, which is it, Genesis? It's a very good, read it if you can. Genesis chapter 39. Joseph is this young guy, and he's good looking. He's ripped. He's probably doing manual labor, and he's very handsome. And the guy that's bought him out of slavery is Potiphar, and Mrs. Potiphar is a housewife. And this Mrs. Potiphar looks at this Joseph and goes, oh, that's very nice. And she lets temptations in, and suddenly there's this obsession. Do you notice in that story how she nags him? She goes after him. She's obsessed with Joseph. And then, this is how the fourth thing happens. It causes the person to lust. In other words, that thing of obsession starts to be scheming. She tries to see how she can get Joseph in the corner. She wants to try and trap him and say, come lie with me, come lie with me. This obsession starts to be scheming. And it might just be in your mind. You play out different reels of how you can meet, oh, by chance. Or they divorce their wife and fall in love with you. Or you set up sort of these meetings in your mind. And that becomes a reality. And the Greek is two ways in this. It's very, very clever the way that Matthew has written it. Because it can either be the person who's being tempted or the person who is the vehicle for temptation. In other words, the Greek can read like this. Everyone who looks at a woman with the purpose of getting her to lust. Vice versa. Can I say this morning, ladies and gentlemen, there is a big difference between dressing attractively and dressing for seduction. Not so? And we know the difference. We know the difference. There is a big difference between, how's it? How are you? How's it? How are you doing? Are you doing well? Yes. Oh, shame. Your husband's working late again. We know the difference between, oh, I'm hanging out in this place. Flip, these chicks are hot. Maybe I'll get some action. And then you, you look for where the person's vulnerable. That's what scheming does. And that's where the fifth stage happens. And this is the most dangerous of all. It's engaging in the sexual act outside of marriage. And what can happen here is either both sides are, I'm in. Yeah, baby, let's get the party started. Or even worse, only one side's in and there's abuse or rape. Some of us have had the devastation of experiencing that lust in another being forced upon us. And that's what happened in Amnon in 2 Samuel 13 verse 12. His half-sister Tamar, I mean, he's his sister, same father, different mother. She's this beautiful girl. And he gets sick with obsession. And his friend helps him scheme on how to catch her so that he, he fakes illness. He sends everybody else. And Tamar comes baking the bread that he's requested her to do. And he grabs her and he rapes her. And can I say, please don't misunderstand me here. Don't say, well, if I've lasted in my heart, it makes no difference if I just do the act that's both sin, right? No, <laughs> let me tell you, if you act on that lasting in your heart, and Jesus knows this, the consequences are far worse than if it's just been in here. Sin's the same. But you know why the consequences are so severe? It's because you can't go back to the old normal. It's done. That life is changed irrevocably. And it can cause serious hurts. Adultery, if it hurts the spouse it's done against. There can be inappropriate pressure on dating relations where the one wants more than the other, and the one just feels like there's a breakdown of trust or there's a sort of guilt that comes into the relation, or abuse. Do you know what it's like? I was trying to think. I mean, I've struggled with this in my own life. It's like living under shadows. That's what it's like. Is your whole life gets a sense of darkness and oppression, and everything's kind of done in this space of shadow. And maybe today, maybe today, this is a word in season for anybody here. 
Can I say, if God is gripping your heart and saying, this is something you must attend to, it's grace. It's grace coming to you because you might just be in time snatched from the fire. Or maybe now you, you're indulging any of this stuff. Let me tell you, take God's words seriously. Get out as fast as you can. Make right. Put things right in your life. Because I tell you now, the end result of unrepentant lust, it's destruction. And Jesus wants us to take this last thing extremely seriously. When Jesus is talking about plucking out your eye, I mean, that's pretty hectic, right? Please, nobody do that. I want both sets of eyes here next week. All right. Cutting off your arm. Anybody got a hacksaw here? No, no, no. He's not being literal. And by the way, if you pluck out your right, you know it's not literal because you're left with the left, right? You'll be lusting with that eye. You cut off your hand. Let me tell you, you can... Coming blind, maimed, lame, doesn't matter. You'll lust in your heart. It doesn't deal with the issue. But Jesus is saying he wants to prevent it. This cutting off, it's preventing lust coming in its earliest stages. And this might be the fight of your life. Let me tell you, it was one of the greatest fights of mine. And so to this day, I don't take it for granted. I have to be so cautious. Satan comes quickly when you're vulnerable, when there's, there's neglect from your spouse, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling stressed, when there's all these things that want to come and hound your heart when it's vulnerable. I tell you now, it is the fight of your life. Some of you are in the addiction of the sexual lust, and you are fighting it, and it feels like the fight of your life. I can relate to you this morning. But you can beat it. You can beat it. And this is how we deal with it. The first thing is this, don't blame anybody else, please. It's interesting when I listen to Joe talk about Libya. In, our, in the Muslim culture, the women have to wrap up themselves because they mustn't cause people out. Let me tell you, the problem is not the women. The problem is the men in their hearts. And Jesus is saying, yeah, guys, don't just pray about it. Don't just go, oh, Lord, please help and deliver me from this lust. Please help me and take this. No, no. He says, we have to take responsibility. Tear out your eye. Who does it? You. Cut off your hand. Who does it? You. Praying is not enough. We're not victims here. We have to be proactive, responsible followers of Jesus. And the way that we have to deal with this is in three ways. It's so important. It follows the text. The first is we have to deal with our hearts. That's the first thing Jesus mentions. Anyone who commits adultery in their heart. The second is this. We have to deal with our hands. We have to cut off something in our lives. And the third is we have to deal with our head. Jesus wants to think about us with a perspective of what this is going to cost us in light of eternity. So let's look at the first thing, the heart. Notice where the root problem is. It's lusting in the heart. Like I said, you can pluck your eye out. You can chop your ears off. You can cut your tongue out. You can cut your limbs off. You will still have the same problem. And it says in Proverbs, above all else, above all else, we have to guard our hearts. Why? Because from it, we do everything. And can I say to you this morning, your greatest weapon, your greatest weapon against lust is guarding your joy in Jesus. Your greatest weapon against lust is guarding your joy in Jesus. Let me tell you, if you come in and go, oh, I'm so depressed, I'm so angry with this, I understand struggle. You'll have no victory in that way. You have to come to a place where you understand it's not just what your hands are doing, it's not just what your mind is doing. Most important, it's where your heart is. Yeah. What's satisfying your deepest desires? What's satisfying your deepest longings? Oh man, let me tell you, if it's not Jesus, it will be something else and it will come in all of these different forms. You are at your strongest when you are most satisfied in Jesus. You see, you can only weigh up what this thing of lust is going to cost you when you see how priceless Jesus is in your life. When we don't guard our enjoyment of Jesus, we'll give him up for anything. And today, I want to say to you, is the most important thing in your life and mine is to guard our enjoyment of Jesus. What does the Scripture say? It's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Not so? Mark Eden says, the misery of the devil is our weakness. And that's what happens with lust. Is the second you give into it and you do the act, what do you, you feel so dirty? You feel so, so separated from, you feel so filthy. And the very place where you need to recover, which is to come back to Jesus, it becomes more and more distant because you feel so ashamed. Not so? 
And in a sense, we withdraw from the one that helps us recover. No, no, my friend, your greatest weapon is your relationship with Jesus and your refusal to be separated from him. And this is why people will say from the front here, take this seriously. You have to spend regular time with this person, Jesus, in order to foster this relationship of deep, lasting value with him. That will look, like different, look differently for everybody here. But I want to say to you, in your life, this thing of quiet time, whatever that looks like for you, it is essential. Not because it's just a duty, not because you're just arriving for a shift. It's because you're coming to fellowship with Jesus. You're coming to your Savior, your best friend, your older brother, your king, your high priest, the one who loves you more than anyone on the planet, the one who understands you better than anyone on the planet, who has the power to forgive, to strengthen, to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. If you try to live any other way, you'll fail. You know what? In my heart, I had the accountability partner. You can set up a confessional booth in your bedroom. You can have a brick for a cell phone that has no internet access. You can tell your mom and dad or your wife change the Wi-Fi password. You can do what you like. But let me tell you, if your heart is not connected to the joy of knowing Jesus, no matter what you put in place, it will not last because the deepest satisfaction of your life is not in lust, it's not in a woman, it's not in work, it's not in money. It comes from the Son of God Himself. And we live dangerously when we neglect this glorious relationship of Jesus. He said, I can do all things, Paul says, I can do all things through what? Through my willpower? Through my rules and regulations? No, through Christ who strengthens me. Can I say, even in your agonizing over repeated failures, you bring that into the presence of Jesus. You refuse to take your eyes off him or to be distanced from him. And I tell you one, the secret of the Christian life is to avoid depression. The secret to having spiritual strength is guarding your joy in the Lord, where you say, there's my source of life. And the thing is this, I tell you what, I promise you, you can face almost anything if you are rejoicing in Jesus. Well, the second is this, I must hurry up, is the hands. Notice the order. The heart comes first, then the hands. And the hands represent any vehicle or channel of body in our body through which we are vulnerable to lust. Notice you have the eye, and one commentator I think rightly says, generally speaking, men are more attracted by what is visual. Hmm? Yeah. He says you've got the hand because generally speaking, women respond to affection. Arousal through touch. But he could have said the foot. You cut it off. It's the places where you go. And notice what he says here. He says, Jesus says, if, if your eyes, if your hand. He's saying everybody is going to be tempted differently. Some struggle with the eyes. Some struggle with the feet. Some struggle with the hands. It just depends how you wide. And each person is different. And to cut off or gouge out your eye or your hand, it's to avoid the temptation. It means to close those avenues in our lives that lead us to be inflamed with lust. And so this is how it works. You live like you've plucked out your eye. When you see something coming along, you don't look. You live like you cut off your hand. When you are tempted to touch something, you don't touch. You live like you've chopped off your foot. When you're tempted to go somewhere, you don't go. And I'll put it to you this morning, it is not strength to show how close you can get to temptation and resistance. You see, often with youth, and even with young adults, and I would say even with married people, how far is too far? That's what they want to know. They want to try and get as close as possible to the, to the fire, not say, I live that like that. I'm, I'm pointing at myself. That's not the good. It's how far can you avoid what is going to burn you down? And that's different. So when you talk to two different couples who are youth, who are dating, you talk to a person who's married, who's struggling, I'm telling you, it will be different for each person. But, but, they have to know themselves. That's how it works. We have to know where we are vulnerable to temptation. And real spiritual strength is knowing where temptation can be found and not going there. The other thing about this is, Vickers, I'll ask you a question. Would you be willing to give up your right hand for anything? What would you give it up for? Your family. Your family is precious to you, right? Vickers will only give up his right hand for something that he will die for. 
Right hand, most people are right-handed. I'm telling you, anybody here willing to give their right hand for anything? What Jesus is saying is this cost of resisting lust, it must be something, and it might very well be something so precious to you. Your eye, your, your hand. I want to say to you this morning, what are you valuing in your life that you know you have to get rid of? And it might be something that is incredibly painful. I tell you what, this gouging out of an eye or cutting off of the hand, there's no fun in it, please. I w- oh, no, I'm going to have to tell that story. I don't have time. So this is it, guys. This is it. What is it in your life? Is it a habit? Is it a person? Is it a place? Is it an interest? And the, the, is it a friendship? The, dis- the risk is this. This is the risk. Is that you might find pushback from those whom you're trying to pull away from. I'll put it to you like this. You might find criticism of, oh, why aren't you watching that series? Why aren't you reading that book? Why aren't you watching that film? You might feel left out and go, no, no, I just can't do it. Why won't you do it? No, no, I just don't want to watch it. I mean, come on. Why? No, I don't want to watch it because in it is somewhere where I'm going to fall into lust. If it's a relationship and this person, you're burning for each other and you know you love this person, but you're not living in righteousness before God. You either have to fix that or you have to get out, my friend. That's how it works. And it can feel like you're chopping off your hand. It's excruciating. It's difficult. It is so painful. Can I remind you, no matter how difficult it seems, Christ sweated blood. Paul says, none of us have experienced temptation at the point of where we've resisted so much that the particles of blood are falling down our face. And Paul says it like this. I think it's Paul. Yeah, I think it's Paul. Is that he says, don't worry. You might resist. God will provide a way out. This temptation might come. You might be feeling, I'm cutting off my hand. I'm cutting off, gouging out my eye. I'm running away as fast as I can. And, you say, and at the 11th hour, God will provide a way out. I don't have time to be what that actually achieves in you spiritually. It's a massive victory. But friends, today, what do we need to cut out of our lives, which are avenues for lust? It will be different for each of us. The, the, the last thing is the head. Jesus says, if you're going to tackle this thing called lust, is you have to get your thinking straight. I have to get my thinking straight. Notice what he does here. He immediately points us towards eternity. What does he say? It is better. Notice that. It is better. That excruciating pain, that difficult decision that you have to make, that, that resisting of sin. He says, it is better you experience that pain and get out. Then... I've lost my place. Ha, ah, yes, hell. <laughs> Sorry, that came out really harsh. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus brings eternity in line and saying, guys, if we don't think carefully about how we use our bodies, we can lose something. And can I say to you this morning, this is how anybody who achieved anything for God thinks. Remember Moses? Here's this guy. He's the prince of Egypt. Ever thought about that? Pharaoh's daughter's his mummy, adopted mummy. But this guy has got all the education, the wealth, the access, the prestige of Egypt. And what does he do? In Hebrews 11 verse 26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. How much do you think about heaven? Abraham thought about it. He looked towards a city whose designer and builder is God. He wanted to inherit the promise for which God had given him over his life. Paul says, I run the race to get the prize, the crown. And Jesus himself, it says of Jesus, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Honor from the Father in heaven. And Jesus says to us, guys, when it comes down to deciding what you're going to do about lust, you have to think not only about where God in your heart, about your hand. You have to realize what's on the line eternally if you give into it. Because what happens is, when we get the temptation, we think, I'm going to miss out. 
I'm going to miss out on this awesome opportunity. Maybe I can twist the hand of God so that I can enjoy this. It feels so good. It must be right, not so. That's what we say. And we justify the moment of passion so that we can indulge in it. But Jesus is saying, guys, think about eternity. Think about what's at stake. When you are tempted, you've got to weigh up what's really at stake, which is this. What will you lose eternally if you give in to sin's fleeting pleasure now? You see, judgment of unrepentant, and I stress that with unrepentant sexual sin, it will be severe. Jesus says the whole body will be thrown into Gehenna, which is a kind of supernatural fire. And the whole body means our motives, our hearts, our minds, as well as how we are to have disciplined our bodies. It will be judged one day. It will be judged what we have done in the flesh. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelations 20 verse 12 to 13 says the same. And there is such a thing, I preached on this in week one of anger, of this thing of salvation through fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15 is very clear. It says, we receive this foundation, which is the righteousness of Jesus. It's the most awesome gift. He is laid down. You cannot add to that foundation. You cannot take it away. There is your sure salvation, your rock, the one that you build on. No one, Paul says, can lay another foundation other than Christ. And that's what you receive by faith in Jesus. But what you do with that salvation matters. And Jesus explains it like this. If you build with hay, straw, and stubble, which is just giving into fleeting desires of sin, when it comes eschatologically at the end times, when we stand before to receive either this testing of what we have done in the flesh, either reward or not, is when this Gehenna sort of supernatural fire is applied to our lives, if it is hay, straw, or stubble, it will be burnt up. If it's precious stones and gold, in other words, you were obedient to Jesus, it will bring eternal glory. And I'll put it to you like this. Do I believe that a born-again believer can lose their salvation? In other words, they're standing righteous in Jesus? I say, no ways. You have not added anything Christ has done. He's perfect. You've received Jesus. But if you ask me, is it loss of salvation? But if you say, can a, can a Christian lose a lot? I'll say yes. I'll say yes. Do you remember the story of Esau? Esau was the rightful inheritor of the promise. And what happened one day? He comes in from the field. He's starving, hungry, and he sees this pot of stew, and there's his crafty brother Jacob, mm, stirring up the nice pot of meat. What does Esau do? He says, I want some of that stew. And Jacob says, give me your birthright. And for a bowl of stew, Esau gives up his inheritance. Why would God allow a story like that in the Bible? Because it is a warning, a forewarning of saying, if we despise our inheritance, we will lose a lot. And ways to despise your inheritance is unrighteous anger, bitterness. If you will not forgive that person that hurt you, if you will not go in for and make reconciliation as far as possible, you will lose what God wants to give you. If you hold on to lust unrepentantly and you nurture it and you foster it, saying, I'm getting away with it on earth, my friend, you will not get away with it in heaven. There is such a thing as being hurt by the second death. Now, that's serious. It's partly a mystery, but I'll say to you, it's clear in Scripture. So why does Jesus talk with these words? Because he doesn't want us to miss out on what he has in store for us. How seriously do you take it that when you got saved, there are predetermined good works for you? There's a purpose. There's a promised land. Vicar said it. There's no other person like him on planet Earth. And God's going to be a channel through which he's going to be a channel through which God moves. And he's made Vicus the way he is because of Vicus's calling. And God wants him to inherit that. There are promises on Vicus's life that he wants him to inherit. He wants him to finish well. Like Paul says, he wants to earn the crown, the prize, the upper call of Jesus. 
If you don't take that seriously, oh, wow, we'll live carelessly. But can I say to you, even now, some of us might be saying, well, I've committed the act already. It's too late. If this message had come to me, it's too late. Can I say to you, don't believe that. That is advice from Satan. Can I tell you about the beautiful story in Scripture when that lady is caught in adultery in John chapter 8? Just think about this for a moment. This lady is caught in the act. She's probably clutching the sheets, covering herself. And these guys haul her before Jesus. He's been preaching to all of these people to humiliate her. They've got stones in their hand. According to the Mosaic law, they were to stone a sexually moral person. Forget about where the guy is. That's the question I ask. The lady's here. And the guys are saying, Jesus, should we stone this woman? They're trying to catch him out. You see, they're trying to get him to break the law of Moses so they can kill him. And he says this. He's embarrassed. He won't even participate in her humiliation. That's Jesus. So he's drawing with a stick on the ground. And he says, anybody here want to cast the first stone? Anyone without sin, cast the first stone. You won't look at her. You won't humiliate her. And he says, the oldest guys left first. Let me tell you, in this room here, nobody can cast the stone. And the older you are, the more you know. Like that president, I think it's Jimmy Connors, he said, I have committed adultery many times in my heart. And one by one, they all leave. It's just left her and Jesus. And Jesus asks the question. He's still doodling in the ground. He says, has anybody condemned you? She says, no, Lord. Without preparation, without the ten lists of what she must never do again, Jesus just says to her, neither do I. The world, in your recovery today, you might say, I'm too far gone. You are not too far gone for the Lord. My friend, if God has gripped your heart, there is hope for recovery. Even now, you might be caught in the act. Praise God, you got caught out. Because it's, it's grace now that you got caught, instead of being caught on the end when there's nothing you can do about it. But let me tell you now, if God is gripping your heart and he's knocking on saying, you have to deal with this in your life, it is grace, my friend. It is God coming to you not to moralize, not to humiliate, not to be cruel. He's saying, no, you come to me. I'm your recovery. I won't condemn you. Everyone else might. Your family, I'm telling you, adultery does terrible things. They might turn their back on you. Your kids might reject them. You might long for a relationship you might never have with them until the day you die. Let me tell you, if anybody else forsakes you, God won't. And even in a limp, even in for the rest of your life, you might not be able to go back to the old normal. I tell you, God can use that limp for his glory. Is that you might experience the wonder of the verse where God says, he works all things. Is it just the small things? No, all things for the good. Is it just good things? No, the bad things. He works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me tell you, the greatest adulterer in history who murdered the man whose wife he took was David. The son of God came from his line. Are you too far away for the Lord? No. Are you too weak for obedience? No. If you're a Christ follower, you have the spirit. You have the hope of the blood of Jesus restoring you, cleansing you, forgiving you, giving you the power to stand. This morning, the hope of Jesus Christ is for you. And I will tell it, and boldly, if anybody in this church points the finger, we have fallen short of the grace of God. Let me tell you today, this might be the life-changing moment where you turn around and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Praise the Lord. No turning back. But the issue here, the issue here is who are you going to take seriously in your life? On whose authority are you going to build? I tell you, if you will trust Jesus with your life and be obedient to him, it will lead to the greatest blessing. The greatest blessing. The greatest blessing. Let me tell you, I stand here this morning as a trophy of grace. I didn't qualify for this. God had mercy on my life. The same is for many, many people here. 
we serve a God of second chances. Amen. Even now, you might have regretted the last 20 years. Let me tell you, make the next 20 the best. Come out of the shadows. The Lord will not condemn you. I want to say to you this morning, there are many, many questions that might have come up. I want to just encourage you. I'm going to pray. But don't hold back. Don't hide. The Lord loves you. This message is for you. This has been for me. He is so gracious. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. You know us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> and God, this morning, I'm so grateful that you love us unconditionally. Or who, Lord, is worthy? Who can exercise enough will, enough power of our own, all our little rules and regulations, Lord? Well, here you are, Jesus, the Son of God, in whom we stand. And I pray this morning, Lord, there might be someone here, I pray they'd stretch out a hand, trust in you this morning. To turn and re-engage with the purpose of your life for them. Father, I pray that even now, the blood of Jesus would come and strengthen and encourage Anyone who's feeling weak. Anyone who's stumbled. I pray that you would just show them the tenderness of heaven. I pray today, Lord, you would help us from this place, guard you in our hearts as our first love. Lord, we might be a people that have learned to love Jesus and enjoy him. And to guard that joy. I pray that, Lord, for any of us here, we need wisdom. Lord, wisdom to know what we need to cut out in our lives. I pray for courage to do so. And then, Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that understand that we're in it for the long haul. We resist. It's better for us. We resist. We cut this out because, Lord, on that day, we're lining up for honor. And we want it all. We want to be able to say, Jesus, this is what you have achieved in me. All glory to you. We pray this in your precious and perfect name. Amen. We want to be here if you want any prayer, if you want to chat, we'll wait here. Steve, Vickers, love your wives, Pierre.